This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am Dave Moten, the author of Mindframe and the narrator of the regular chapter episodes. With me, as is the case every week, is Brent Van Tassel, my partner in crime and producer extraordinaire. He's one of the co-founders of the Podbelly Network, which is a great place to go find podcasts and information about podcasts. Just go to podbelly.com and you can find out all kinds of really cool stuff um, if you're into podcasting. Um, always want to start the episode by reminding you that our our sponsor is El Yucateco Hot Sauce. And as I say every week, um, I'm not just plugging it because they're paying us to. I'm plugging it because we are all completely addicted to El Yucateco Hot Sauce. That's why we sought them out as a, a sponsor in the first place. We, we agreed when we all started podcasting that we were only ever going to take on sponsors, um, that we really care about the product and we really like it. Um, I listen to all kinds of podcasts and they've got random you know, generic, everybody's got the same sponsor, you know, things. And we're not interested in that, but we love El Yucateco. And uh, quick tip, um, if you want to transform your food and change your life, take whatever your favorite barbecue sauce is and hit it with a healthy dose of El Yucateco before you start cooking. Um, And it really transforms the sauce in ways that I can't quite... uh, um, convey. So I always do it with black because it adds that smokiness to the barbecue sauce, but, um, try it out, um, mix it with other condiments and it will, it will up your condiment game. But El Yucateco is the place to go. You can go to their website, um, and find all kinds of really cool gear, order it if you can't find it nearby, but El Yucateco, try it out. If you love hot sauce, you are going to love El Yucateco. Um, also you can find us on patreon.com backslash mindframe podcast. Uh, that's the place to go if you want to support us. Um, uh, it's also the place to go if you want to uh, have access to the sit-down episodes. We record them every week. Um, we usually record them in batches of two um, based on when we can all get together, but we always, uh, we're always we uh, always pretty caught up with the regular episodes. But um, go check out uh, patreon.com backslash mindframe podcast to, uh, to run into that. Um, where we left off, uh, we're, we're coming back around to... Uh, Barbeau, a.k.a. the woman previously known as Josephine Wu in the Old Dame Hotel, um, where we last left off. Uh, the universe continues to unspiral uh, for poor Barbeau, and uh, she's waiting eagerly for um, Uncle Alfie to show up. And in this chapter, uh, we finally start to see what comes of that, and we see a, a pretty uh, hard shift in the life of Barbeau. So uh, enjoy the chapter, and thank you for listening. Chapter 24, Barbeau, circa 2011. The past few days were a blur for Barbeau. Teddy's crews came up to the mountain every morning the weather allowed and then headed down a few hours before sunset to beat the freeze. The snow would melt slightly in the winter sun and run down on the roads, making them completely treacherous an hour or so after sundown as all that liquid snow melt turned to a slick layer of black ice. Snow to melt water to ice. Earth was the dominant element up here. Water couldn't even decide upon a state of existence. Teddy, Manny, Junior, and Claire were all staying in the dame now. Barbeau had been so busy she didn't even have time to do tile work. Instead, she spent the bulk of the time cooking for someone other than herself and the dogs. She'd wake before dawn and fire up the industrial kitchen where she'd make a full spread at breakfast some sort of baked goods like cinnamon rolls or fresh loaves of bread, rounded off with eggs and potatoes and fruit. Lunches were typically a hearty soup she'd spend the morning on, paired with a sandwich or pasta. She had to admit, salads sounded better to her, 
but the work crews needed calories for their back-breaking work all day long. Dinners were more quiet and could be done from her apartment kitchen since those meals were only for her, Claire, Teddy, and the guys. They'd play board games in the evening or watch a backlog of whatever they'd gotten in the mail from her Netflix queue. She'd upgraded to the five DVD at a time plan and it was mostly comedies and horror, stuff they could watch while laughing and talking shit to each other. It felt finally like a home again. It felt like Barbeau could relax, but she couldn't because everyone called her Josephine, which she now knew wasn't her name sometimes because she had no real past details as threadbare as living on the mountain and having moved here from the city and because her dogs weren't really dogs sometimes and because ghost priests appeared in her stairwell and because she wasn't Chinese, but she was sometimes. These things didn't hang on her often. She was fine being Josephine most of the time, petting her dogs, being Chinese, but then the cracks would appear. Claire would say something that would trigger her. There was a saying Claire would use, a phrase she'd say as a toast if they had wine with dinner, or she'd say it when they talked about how much hard work was left to get the dame finished. A phrase meant to summon strength from the future as near as Barbeau could tell. Claire would say, the lariat is closing. Barbeau's psyche would respond to this in one of three ways. The first was to pretty much ignore it, which was easy because the dogs would usually do something extra cute or naughty and pull her mind away from the odd saying and onto something more pressing. The second was utter confusion. It was like her reality was cracked and she could see things through a veil no mortal mind was meant to pierce. It would summon the ghosts in the halls, remind her what her dogs were, but it would pass by morning. The third reaction to Claire saying, the lariat is closing, was one of defiance. Barbeau would think suddenly, the lariat tightens, and picture a rope not as a symbol of the future, but as a noose to lynch the innocent in a tree. It would fill her with rage. But lately she realized that the autumn cloud technique was quick and simple and would calm that rage. But then again, she didn't know what an autumn cloud technique was. Long story short, Barbeau was spiraling. She hoped the presence of friends and family would banish the things haunting her, but they didn't. Not at all. They simply let the times in between become more pleasant. Barbeau could picture the life of the hotel being open again as a bed and breakfast, spending her time working systematically through cookbooks in the kitchen, tinkering with unique recipes and old favorites to keep the guests happy as they explored the mountain and the lake. It seemed like a good life, one with purpose, but only if she could stabilize and keep a hold of something that she could call hers. Hell, a first name would be a start. And that was why on this day, she was so happily nervous that she couldn't even hold the soup spoon without spilling it. Her hands shook and she found herself anxiously laughing at everything because her uncle Alfie was finally getting here. The morning was a roller coaster ride as the crews showed up. Every car that pulled up the plowed driveway could have been Alfie. Every time the brass bell rang on the patio to announce someone, she ran from the kitchen only to find some other person in Dickies and Timberlands there for a day's wages. You okay, girl? Teddy asked her after everyone left the dining hall at lunch. He stayed back to help bust the dishes with her, which he never did. He'd also taken to calling her girl instead of Joe or Josephine. It seemed a bit off coming from someone as masculine as Teddy. She thought she could see him react when she'd jump at the name Josephine since it wasn't hers. He had adapted, maybe. 
I'm fine, just anxious. I haven't seen Alfie in a year and I just feel like he's the one who can make me whole. Teddy pursed his lips and nodded, saying, Don't underestimate Y-O-U in that regard. No matter how long the quest, I don't know that I've ever found some part of me that wasn't really already there to begin with. Thanks, Teddy, she said quite sincerely. But this is different. It's like when Guillermo died. I lost some principal part of me. Alfie came to help me grieve back then, and he, I don't know, filled that empty part up with something. But that something sprung a leak one night in front of a black window. It's almost gone. I need him to fill it back up or show me the shape of the hole so I can do it myself. Weird metaphor, maybe. Makes as much sense as anything else, Teddy said. Talk to me when you need, though. Don't ever think I'm too busy no matter what I'm doing around here. She hugged him and said, deal. She could tell he'd grown accustomed to her hugs. Look at you not wincing at my hugs anymore, she said laughing. Teddy started to reply with an exaggerated look of perturbance, but the brass bell rang, and they both fell silent. Go, Teddy said. That isn't one of my guys everyone's accounted for. Barbo sprinted out of the giant dining room and up the hall to the lobby. Some workers were there, hauling lumber up the double staircase. She ran up to the entrance, dogs excitedly in tow, flung open the doors and waited to fall into the arms of Uncle Alfie. What she saw instead was chaos, utter and complete. The ground was bleeding more ground like a fountain of earth, and the sky was filled with a landscape of fractured trees. Puffs of moving cloud had replaced snow on the churning ground, and in particularly bad spaces, the ground clouds parted and magma flowed, belching black smoke, which was the next mountain over, and not smoke at all. And suddenly, the world outside spun past as if the dame was somehow stuck in place, outside even of the Earth's rotational orbit. Sound turned to images she could see, and there was no world, no up, no down, no present, and no past. And all of it, this roiling image of the world churning as a frenzied hell, was sucked down to a focal point, like a spiral of ink down a drain. And that focal point was a bouquet of multicolored pansies, and they were in Alfie's hand, and the world was normal, thanks somehow to the bouquet. He handed her the flowers, staring deep into her eyes. Interesting, he said. Then he opened his arms, and she leapt out and hugged him. His arms were all that held her up as her knees fell out from under her. The world started to close and shrink, and in her periphery she saw the sparkles that said she was falling unconscious. She wept and sank, and Uncle Alfie, as ever, was the only thing keeping her from falling. She came to in her bed as the sound of her tea kettle sang in her apartment's kitchen. Muffet and Porthos were in bed with her. The sun was still high, so she didn't think she'd been out for long. She was glad for the light. Something about the night and the window and someone on the other side. Alfie came in with a tray a few minutes later. It had a teapot, three cups, and some shortbread and a little cheese. The pansies had been arranged in an antique vase and sat beside her computer. She thought they had been an assortment of colors when she accepted them, but now they were all of vibrant violet color. Had quite a spell, darling, Alfie said, setting the tray on the oversized bed and pouring her a cup of tea and then one for himself. He gave it to her, and she cupped it, letting the warmth of the mug fight against the chill of the mountain winter. Passing out after a hallucination is par for the course these days. At least there's tea, she said, holding up the cup in salute. 
Hallucination? Alfie asked. I... It's hard. Like, when I opened the door, the world was just... She twirled the fingers of one hand around in the air and then mimed a gun as she shot herself in the head with it. Alfie nodded and finished for her, saying, The world was like chaos. The ground and sky and smoke and time were all each other and nothing? That's it. Wait, she protested. It's all coming undone, my dear. What is? You saw that? The engrams, he said. Then he turned to the dogs and said, You two be quiet now. Don't interrupt us. In fact, go to sleep. Alpha, Beach, Blacktop 9, Sticky, Temporal Jovian 1. The dogs both lay down and exhaled with such force they almost snored outwardly. They took deep, lazy breaths as if they'd spent the day at the beach and were utterly worn out. I'm so confused, Alfie. I'm so lost. Without Guillermo, this mountain, the city, me? Me? Who am I? You are Marielle Barbeau. Marielle, she thought. It sounded just about perfect, but not Josephine Wu? I'm Josephine Wu. He held his hand out to tilt it one way and then the other like a teeter-totter. Only when it suits you. Where am I from, Alfie? What city did Guillermo and I come from? Guillermo was from Tijuana, the Zona Rio. You were from what they now call San Diego, though it's closer to Ensenadas after the rebuilding. Old San Diego is just part of the Tijuana sprawl now after they backfilled the cold crater. As he spoke, Alfie had been pouring a third cup of tea and was now walking to the bedroom door. There was a gentle knock from the hallway. Alfie said, you may enter, Teddy. He was right. It was Teddy, looking Mariel up and down with concern. Alfie handed him a tea. Teddy took it and then saw the tray and said, good, you drink that up and eat some of those cookies. Mariel said, Teddy, this is Alfie. Teddy said, we met. Something about having to carry you upstairs after you screamed and fainted in the lobby. Weird shit of a day. Right now I was telling the boys that they needed to let the crews go home early with pay so you could get some rest without all the racket. The two of them just fell hard asleep in the middle of the conversation. I couldn't wake them up. Guess they were day drinking? So I told the crews to leave by walkie-talkie and came straight up. Alfie sat in the computer chair and pointed to the foot of the bed. He said, have a seat, Teddy. I was just getting ready to explain things to Mariel, and maybe it's better that you're here too. Her engrams are slipping. I don't know why just yet, only a few things could cause that. Physical trauma, for one, but she hasn't had any. Uh, psychic trauma as well, but I can't find any evidence of that either. That leaves an interruption at the code level of the mind frame, and that can only be done by a member of the Enclave forcing themselves in and bypassing what the attendants do to safeguard you, which is the most interesting of the options. This all made no sense, but it made perfect sense. Mariel thought these ideas rang true, but what was an engram, and what was wrong with hers? Just as she would realize that she wasn't Chinese, but forget all about it moments later, the words Alfie spoke made perfect sense, then no sense, then fell behind a shroud of gray smoke that her mind couldn't pierce. Alfie added, We have business first, the three of us. We have to end your interminable grieving, Mariel. I can't imagine what it's doing to you. Mariel started crying, and she laughed a bit at the reductionist notion that they were going to somehow conclude her grief today. She said, and how exactly do you aim I'll do that? Why, with a puppet show. And you will need this, he said, and moved his hands as if a stage magician to produce a small plastic case of some sort. Alfie tossed it to her and said, no peeking in that case now. Get your snow boots. 
it took a surprisingly long time. First, because the world was buried in snow. So she adapted and started to wander into the little clearings under the thickest trees to find the twigs. But the real problem was that none of them were the right twig. She'd find one, think it was a good length, and then realize it wasn't. It wasn't a Guillermo twig. Alfie and Teddy stood watch over the small, slowly growing pile down on the dock that hung over Lake Akunga. She'd come back with a few more, toss an older one in the lake, and then head out to find even more. Alfie would usually intone with, that's a nice one, or take your time, just as she was feeling guilty at making them wait. She didn't know how long it had taken, but at least an hour, maybe two. She finally hit pay dirt when she found an old stack of wood from two years ago back by the outdoor kitchen. It was under an awning, so it was dry, and there was a healthy stack of kindling back there too. The reason this resonated was because she could remember the crisp autumn day where Guillermo was out here listening to flamenco music, Sabicus or Dalucia if she had to guess, and chopping this wood. Every log, every twig, every limb was touched by him, placed right here to wait until this very moment. At first she thought it was the memory, but she realized someone was playing flamingo guitar down by the shore. It climbed the snowy hill in lazy, sudden wafts of sound. She gathered up arms full of the kindling twigs and sticks and took the brown twine that Alfie gave her. She sat on the edge of the brick pizza oven and laid them out. She started to piece together what would be the puppet, a man made of small sticks about 12 inches high. The humanoid form was something druidic and primal, it made her think of New Age stores or the Blair Witch Project, which they had recently rented on Netflix. It couldn't stand and only had the notional outline of a head, but it would do. For what, she had no idea. She started to head back down to the lake, but had a sudden thought. She ran into the dame, past a couple of piles of tarps where Manny and Junior were still fast asleep, and up to her apartment. The dog snored blissfully, and she headed to the bouquet of pansies. They were a vibrant yellow color with orange marking that almost looked like a face. She took one and slid its stem down into the puppet so the flower was now a proper face and head. Once down on the dock, she kicked all the other sticks into the water. She held this puppet up triumphantly, this wooden Guillermo. Alfie sat on the dock, which was somehow completely absent of snow, and the guitar music was closer but still distant, perhaps being played on a nearby shore of a kunga. Okay, Alfie said. Let's put this nightmare to bed. Mariel didn't know what Alfie had planned, but she reckoned Claire should be here for it, saying, let me go find Claire. No, no, that's okay. She's busy. She has a speech to give the crew right about, well, now, actually, he said, looking at his expensive wristwatch. Plus which, this isn't for her. It's for you. Alfie walked off the dock and around the lake a bit. Teddy and Mariel followed. Teddy walked over and put his arm around Mariel to give her warmth and support as they walked over the gravel that made up most of the lake's shore. The sun was low on the horizon, soon to drop below another mountain and summon an instantaneous darkness. Uncle Alfie walked for about five minutes until he came upon an old, half-rotted boathouse that sat on a sagging dock. It looked familiar, but Mariel had to admit she'd never been here before. That seemed odd with the endless walks she'd taken the dogs on. Alfie walked up to the rickety dock saying, careful, and entered the boathouse. Mariel followed with Teddy right behind. The house was missing board, so the evening light was leaking in. A cold breeze coming off the waters of Akunga made intricate, wide spider webs dance in the shimmer in corners of the boathouse. 
Inside the house, the dock supported the left and right side of the dilapidated building. The center strip was opened up to the water in the space where a boat would have gone. Alpha picked up a board that had fallen off the boathouse wall some years ago and placed it over this watery gap in the center. There was a bent, rusty nail in the middle of the board that had a bit of twine clinging to it. Something hung there once, a set of keys or a wooden craft that said something ironic about boating. Alfie pointed and said, Right there on the nail, Mario. Teddy, if you don't mind helping. Alfie was on the left side of the boathouse, and Teddy and Mario were on the right. Mario tested the stability of the board, found next to none, and figured, what the hell, this can't be any shakier than the rest of my world these days. She felt Teddy take her hand, and she looked him in the face. He was stern, but had a smile there for her. She stepped out on the plank, and Teddy kept her steady. She put the Guillermo puppet on the board, letting the nail hold it in place. Now, the next thing, Uncle Alfie said, patting his pocket. She remembered the case he gave her and took it from her jeans. It was a black plastic thing that articulated and opened like a mouth. Inside was an old Zippo lighter. It was Guillermo's. Mariel had assumed it was on his person when he died in the fire and therefore gone. She hadn't seen it anywhere in the old dame this whole time. You know what to do, Alfie said. She stepped back out on the plank, this time deciding not to take Teddy's hand. She wobbled a bit, but flicked the Zippo to life and placed it at the puppet or she now realized effigies feet. The kindling there started to light, and she did the other foot, and then the belt that held the torso together. It was old, dry twine, and it went right up. The three of them sat in silence and watched the effigy burn. Uncle Alfie had moved beside Mariel at some point. She thought he was going to join her from the other side and hug her as Teddy was, but he simply reached out for the Zippo. He started to walk to various dry patches of the boathouse, some old canvas hanging on the wall, desiccated shake tiles in a stack, and even some rags stacked up near an ancient-looking gas can. In moments, he had summoned half a dozen small fires. Some were going out, but others were spreading. Come, come, Alfie said with a calmness. Everyone left the boathouse. Mario looked in one last time and saw the last bits of Guillermo now catching fire on that center board, which was also ablaze. She reached in and shut the door to the boathouse, which moved with reluctance, but sealed surprisingly well. She joined Alfie and Teddy on a large rock that they had to wipe the snow off of. The breeze blew up from the lake, and the boathouse went from smoking a bit to fully engulfed in a matter of moments. She saw curtains dance as they were alit, heard glass crack and then shatter in the heat. She heard the ice crack in a great heave beneath the heat of the boathouse, and then suddenly she was there again. She was standing outside of the summer wing as it was swallowed by the red-hot hell of that fateful fire. She heard screams within, first a woman, then a man, then Guillermo. They morphed from screams for help to screams of pain. The dogs were barking. The sirens were coming up the mountain road. She ran up to the hallway but couldn't get within five feet. The heat and the smoke were too great. Guillermo was in there. There had to be another way in or out. He was going to die. This was what it meant to watch your world die. Mariel, Alfie said, snapping her out of it. She was only watching the boathouse. You never knew Guillermo Campana. You were not married. You were not Josephine. These are not your memories. As the boathouse burns, you will remember your last real memories. You too, Teddy. 
I need you both to remember how you got here as much as you can. Then you can decide if this is still where you want to be. The decision is the thing, my children. The decision is the thing. And the fire was gone. And the lake. And the old dame and Guillermo. And guilt and mourning and loss. Mariel felt free. She was in the cargo bay of the ship called the Apple of Discord, standing next to Fry. They had both finished putting on their armored spacesuits. There was another man to her right, already armored up. That one would be calling the shots. Bess stood nearby wearing her captain's outfit, a shapely thing that summoned the colors and forms of a full-length skirt from back in World War II. Her hair had a fabulous curl to it with a jaunty Air Force hat pinned at a side angle and her lips were impossibly and perfectly red. The flamenco music was playing on part of the ship's PA. That meant Fry won the argument about what music to play. The soundtrack of their lives lately was either his flamenco or the big band music so adored by Captain Bess. The cargo bay door was open with some sort of shielding keeping them from being evacuated into the void of space. She could see the glowing blaze of Comet Trujillo Williams shedding itself in the sun. There were explosions in the distance as the deviant fleet lanced at the World Navy's Sixth Fleet to provide the Apple of Discord cover. And, of course, front and center was their target the Eleanor Gray. All life inside scrubbed clean by fire. So far, the mission was right on track. Captain Bess nudged Mariel with a wide smile on her perfect lips and said, So what's it gonna be, Barbo? You ready for Operation Steal a Fucking Framer? Mariel smiled and said, I prefer to think of it as Operation Body Swap, as she and the others jogged down the ramp and jumped into space, firing the steering jets on their spacesuits to infiltrate the Eleanor Gray and kidnap Josephine Wu. So with that, we see Marielle Barbeau end in a radically different place than she started in this chapter. So hopefully you'll keep tuning in and uh, you'll come back around uh, to her next chapter to see what exactly is happening, who she's with, and what is up with the ship called the Apple of Discord. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are a proud member of uh, the, the Podbelly podcast network. We are a Podbelly original. Um, if you want to find some really great shows, uh, you're obviously a fan of podcasts if you're listening to this, but there's some great podcasts you can find on podbelly.com, um, including Paranormal Punchers and Hillbilly Horror Stories. If you're into the, the supernatural and things that go bump in the night, those are two shows that you might want to check out. Um, but go to podbelly.com to find them and the rest of the shows on the network. Um, and if you have a podcast and you want to get the word out on it, um, there's a directory that you can, uh, uh, submit your show to, and it'll get you some more ears, um, on, on your show. As always, uh, you can find us on, uh, mindframepodcast.com. We have a merchandise store full of everything, shore, merchandise store full of everything from, uh, t-shirts, uh, to the books that I myself have written and that Zach Smith, the co-host on the, uh, the sit down episodes uh, has written. So you can go to, uh, mindframepodcast.com and find the, the, the merch store there. Um, and, uh, one thing that makes a huge difference to us, uh, and with any podcast, uh, that is still trying to grow and expand its audience is you, the listener engaging on social media podcasts, even though they seem isolated as you drive to work or go to the gym. Um, they're a very social thing. And, uh, if you can engage in social media, it really helps us out a lot. So a quick, like a quick share, a quick subscription, 
um, can make all the difference and, and really, really help the Mindframe community grow. So if you want to uh, check us out on different mediums, go to Facebook and you can find us at Mindframe Podcast. If Twitter is your flavor, you can find us at Mindframe Pod. And if you like Instagram, you can always find us on the Mindframe Podcast. So um, that's it for this week. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening. Um, and remember, the Lariat is closing. <laughs>